0: Hey,
1: good morning, welcome back to 1 of 200, it's the 27th of May, 2023, this is our second episode back, uh, season 2 baby, uh, 2 of 200, we're back. Um... Thanks for joining us. This is New Zealand's Independent Media and Politics Podcast. We're going to talk about a few more current events issues today. We're in the the wake of a pretty kind of meager budget that's being predictably attacked by the right for splashing money around and attacked by people trying to survive for not splashing it into their wallets. Um but in the in the wake of that, we've had a few kind of interesting things happen this week. The first of which I wanted to touch on was the school strikes for climate march yesterday. There are four kind of headline demands this time, was a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030, a full transition to regenerative agriculture by 2030, Tiriti-centric climate decision-making, and lowering the voting age to 16. So a few kind of new or evolving kind of goals, I suppose, evolutions on a theme. But one thing that I thought was uh, notable about the strike, and also the school strike uh, a couple of months ago, is that it's just not generating the kind of Media hype that it did in 2019, um, or indeed sort of that entire period, there was a whole period of series of interviews with teenagers um, fired up about the issue and getting it into mainstream media in quite a kind of um, attention-grabbing way, right? It was headline news for a lot of that time, Uh, and there's been sort of, you know, I guess a a cooling on that, no, no pun intended, by the establishment media. And maybe they're just bored with it. Maybe they're sort of seeing it through different ways. And one sort of strength of the of the climate strikes, I thought at the time uh, in the twenty nineteen, the huge ones that became enormous, is they were so family friendly. Right, it was very like uh, old people, young people, big broad alliances of different kind of groups. Um, almost two hundred thousand people at its at its greatest uh, swelling point. Um, and now we're talking about sort of 300 people in Christchurch, 250 or 300 in Auckland, 15 locations around Auckland, around New Zealand still. So they're trying to kind of rev it up again. I just had a look on their Facebook group before and they've got about 10,000 supporters on that on their Facebook group. But yeah, just not not the kind of like pickup that you might've expected in election year. It might still be early. They might still be kind of transitioning and, and growing to try to get more, more energy. But uh, in terms of their kind of, Political engagement there, trying to say that you know not everything happens in the house. We need to be out on the streets again, marching, pushing for for change. A couple of Green Party MPs came out and spoke to them in Wellington and Auckland, Um, and the Climate Change Minister James Shaw was in Auckland and spoke to the Climate March and said that the 2019 March had made a quote material difference to the political environment that helped lead to the passing of the Zero Carbon Act. And all those things that have happened since then, like the New Zealand Steel Deal announced over the weekend. So No, he didn't. He did. So thanks, uh, School Strikers for Climate and uh Climate Minister James Shaw for revolutionizing our um our emissions profile and uh, the entire sort of structure of our economy in the way that we that we need. So that sort of leads into a broader topic that I want to spend more time on. That's how does how is this actually been happening for the last few years what's actually changed and the way that we sort of have these conversations about emissions and uh the economy and the entire structure around that so on that more kind of macro scale i'm going to pass over to paul callens for his thoughts on this and the recent steel deal in particular
0: oh gosh i think it's such an interesting topic eh? like you know you mentioned the the, the massive strike that was in, in 2019 and just how how different it is now and I honestly don't like I don't know why it's not as big like is it a combination of you know um, post-covid cost of living crisis like um, and I guess the progress or we would argue lack thereof and um, you know climate policies uh, like you just touched on Philip by the by the current government is is there sort of a mix of these things that's contributing to you know a lack of Turnout out to these types of events or these like later strikes i don't know what's your guys reckons on that before i dive into some more of the stuff about uh, the the oh, i think
2: there's something i think there is something there i've i've been pondering this myself because i feel like there's definitely been a turnover in the sort of the generations and i think a lot of the people that were really pivotal several years ago they're at university now um it's coming up on exam week in a couple of weeks time there's a lot of stuff going on um, and I think you know, people are sort of falling into life situations. So um, I wonder if it's been, you know, there's a new generation at secondary school now, um, and there has been a lot of emphasis on it being led by teenagers. So, um, you know, maybe there is, maybe there's something to that. Um, of course, like students are really struggling with cost of living at the moment, a lot more than people realise, I think. Um, maybe we can talk about that later on. But um yeah I mean that's just one of those kind of black hole things we don't really know
0: the full story. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, um in terms of the uh the policy that was announced by um James Shaw and Megan Woods uh, and the Prime Minister the other day. So and uh what what James was claiming was um like you were saying Philip you know was was brought about by the school strikes in 2019. And I guess all this uh, focus, I think, I think he emphasized that, that this particular policy was um, the single, was it the single biggest emissions reduction project uh, in New Zealand's history, potentially that he claimed. But anyway, so what this is, is um, a $140 million subsidy that's getting paid to uh, New Zealand steel, uh, which is a large private company, um, That produces steel in auckland uh and um basically this 140 million dollars is going towards uh investing or or subsidizing new zealand steel to invest in um a what's it called again does anyone know can anyone help me out do Um, you
2: mean the electric arc furnace
0: electric arc furnace that's exactly it thank you and i don't know all the exact details of the of the project but i think um, it's sort of melting down steel in a more environmentally friendly way um, using you know our renewable energy sources um, rather than coal and and so on Um, so that's the kind of specifics of the project but i guess the this broader debate around the project itself um, which is quite interesting and ties into what we're talking about before is like how how effective is this is this going to be Um, and is it like should this be the way that we're that we're doing emissions reduction. Should we be subsidizing large private corporates that are extremely profitable um to be reducing their emissions uh through, you know, like with, with the help with the help of government investment. And this ties in with the ETS because there's been lots of arguments that are made that, you know, would is is this actually going to reduce emissions because of the way that the ETS works? And we can get into some of the technical arguments about that. But yeah, I was I was just reading a um piece um, that Rod Oram did in, in newsroom, which touches on some of the difficulties, I guess, with this project. And um, Rod had pointed out that uh, the, the kind of amount of these types of projects that are available for the government to subsidize into in, in the country are quite small. Um, and actually, most of the emissions reductions needs to come from uh, our largest emitting sectors, Uh, And so he pointed out that um, six of the worst emitters in the country, which are like oil and gas companies and like Fonterra, basically the dairy industry. um, So six of them account for over half of the country's total emissions, right? So this specific project um, with NC Steel could reduce emissions by, I don't know, 1% or whatever it's going, whatever it was proposed to do. Uh, But if we don't address uh, the dairy industry and the fossil fuel um companies in New Zealand, then that's going to be a drop in the bucket. So yeah, what do you guys think of all that? Uh it's kind of interesting some of the debates that have formed around this. Um it'd be good to get into some of the stuff around the ETS. Uh and also I thought um our very own Josephine's comments on Twitter around the the kind of corporate welfare aspects of this were also a really interesting thread. So maybe we could touch on some of those uh, as well. What do you guys reckon?
3: Yeah, I think the first thing that's really jumped out to me about it is It's this very um, green, green capitalism kind of market approach, right, to the climate crisis that just hasn't and and doesn't work. Uh, And it's been pushed for decades now as a way to force uh, polluters and and these kind of high impact industries to interact with the market, uh, because if the market wants something, then they're going to have to act that way. And it's never really turned out to be the case. And I'd say incredibly counter to what Shaw has been claiming around this being a success uh, for, for the policies and the systems he's enacted as climate minister. It, the fact that you're having to shell out the subsidy which he you know he's claiming is paid for by polluters which is a really like insidious line um and we'll maybe try and get into why uh he's had to shell 140 million dollars to get the company to do what they want and maybe maybe like they've, they've ostensibly gotten to agree to this uh but you know it's going to take time to actually do the project and who knows what's going to happen in the in the next couple of years. I, I, I certainly don't trust big business to to deliver um, when we give them free money. The fact that we had to pay it out to even get them to agree to move their their processes into a more sustainable or, or less polluting uh, framework because they just haven't responded to the market, or I should say more specifically, responded to the extreme necessity to stop destroying the climate, is an indictment on on this whole project, like so, the, these companies are only going to stop doing incredibly destructive practices because we give them millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not buying it, and it's an embarrassment to have uh, a green politician uh, and, and and a number of people in this caucus uh, going out of their way to try and force this as like some kind of green climate win when it's 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 not it's a it's a big business win um taking money off like straight out of public purse for who knows what outcome
1: and i mean that that line that you just used is the has been the kind of defense right that we have to do this to change um to change their behavior uh but we don't i mean to to say the obvious we live in a country with a very powerful state apparatus that could force people to do there's carrots and sticks right and instead of even thinking about some kind of like planned transition or the kind of thing that we've been talking about for years and lots of people have been talking about for years, it's a very ad hoc kind of, here's $140 million, do this one thing that we want you to do. And this is the problem with a market fundamentalist kind of strategy when it comes to a huge, like wicked problem like climate change, is that you're always going to get these kind of frictions and forces rubbing up against each other it turns out humans live in the country as well as like you know widgets and and units on graphs so this was always going to be the the issue with a purely kind of um you know allocate carbon credits to the most valuable output kind of philosophy you know when humans are involved it's more messy than that because people have desires that don't uh conform to you know, marginal utility.
3: <laughs> and that's a really, the other really frustrating thing is, and I think you could say at least somewhat of a hallmark of this labour, this continuing labour government over the last couple of terms, is that they've been very willing to give corporate handouts for nothing in return, except promises. Like they could have taken shares here. It could have been a loan. There are a number of other ways they could have implemented this that would have balanced it out better uh and not just being a handout uh but they've they've really gone all in to make this as easy for new zealand steel and have as few obligations on new zealand steel as possible uh well like i hope they use the money and do this project but what if it turns out that uh oil prices just go through the floor in the next 12 months and it's just or coal prices or whatever and it's just way cheaper it's Look, sorry, we can't. there's no point doing this right now because it we will make money by coal-firing this place uh, for the next twelve months because this is how these businesses operate. you can you cannot compete as a state against the global market in that sense. it's it's just this this really weak understanding of how these global cartels operate.
0: yeah, so some really good points in there, and like in particular, you're totally right around like the kind of leniency of the government on this you know not um like you say taking shares um or providing a loan uh, or anything like that it's it's very yeah very much in their favor um i want to come back to this this other point that um both you and philip touched on um which i think is really interesting so like that and this is a, not that i would argue this but actually a lot of the market purists would uh, also argue that NZ Steel would have done this um, action anyway if they weren't already so heavily subsidized by the government right so outside of this 140 million dollars right they already receive uh, lots of free allocations of um, NZUs um, which is the carbon credits from the uh, emissions trading scheme uh, because they're a trade exposed company or whatever Um, so they're important for our trade balance and so the government is like, here you go, you can have some free allocations to pollute, right? But I think um where it ties in with both of your guys' points is that if they didn't receive this, then maybe they would have a greater incentive to reduce their emissions, right? And actually invest their own money into this, um whatever I I forgot what it was called again. Um, some big melting machine. Um and
3: that's it, that's all like that's all you need to know. It's a big melting yeah, machine, it doesn't
0: steel melting machine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that I mean, if they weren't already receiving that free allocation, then they might do that. But the government's solution is not to uh as you know the market purists would even want for them to remove all of these subsidies altogether, right, and let the let the ETS do its job. You know, we'll come back to that because that's um ridiculous as well. But that's what they would argue, right? And then, you know, that would then they would actually invest in, you know, that you know, maybe that would work, maybe it wouldn't. I, I, I'm skeptical as to whether it would, um, because I think that these uh market mes- mechanisms are designed actually in a way um that they're sort of inherently corruptible um by sort of corporate interests and and their political backers um but yeah so really interesting around the around the um free allocations Uh, and i think josephine raised that in her tweet thread as well and you should check it out if you haven't um all of our listeners but one other one other thing before i forget i want to come back to this argument around polluter pays um and whether this is like taxpayer money or whatever right because when this policy got announced, everyone was like, oh, you know, it's a corporate handout. Um, why are we throwing taxpayer money, subsidizing this company for that? And, you know, like you pointed out, Kyle, the argument in response was, oh, no, actually, it's uh, not, well, I don't know if they say, it said it's not taxpayers' money, but they're like, oh, no, it's, it's the polluters that are paying because they're purchasing um, the ETS. Uh, well, it's, it's the money that's going into the ETS, right? And there's, there's a number of things to this.
3: You think there could be any consequences of building a revenue stream based on polluting?
0: Yeah, I know, right? And and I have a feeling that we've talked about this on this on this podcast before. And I suspect
3: Almost like yeah. we predicted it.
0: <laughs> I mean, it just drives me up the wall, right? That like in the budget last year, and not 2023, 2022 budget, Grant Robertson, uh I think he was announcing an increase to the what is the Climate Emergency Response Fund, CERF, which is the is the pool of money that um comes from this this revenue stream from the ETS, right? Um, and but in the speech, I think it was a really really important speech actually, and I think that um you know we'll New Zealand politics will come to regret this um this speech because I think it's actually yeah it's 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 more important than I think um we realised at the time, but. Graham Robertson said that um, that this money would go towards climate projects, uh, and he also implied that no that climate projects would would sort of pay for themselves; they would wash their own face, you know, so to speak. So it was very much like balanced budget rhetoric, uh, and that that um, general sort of government borrowing wouldn't go towards climate projects because it's funded out of the Climate Emergency Response Fund. Now, as you pointed out, Kyle this is a very unpredictable revenue stream, right? Um, and that is is—it is also, we want to actually reduce these revenues because we want to reduce pollution and we want to reduce the amount of, you know, corporates and businesses that are purchasing these units so they can then pollute, right? And it should have a sinking lid um, on the uh, on the policy by design. Well, I mean, it, it does, right? But that, you know, if the price is going up, then in theory, the revenue should be, you know, at least neutral or growing over time. That's That's the theory but ultimately we don't want this pollution going into the atmosphere so that and the other factor is, is that the unpredictability of it uh where you've got the government that have not delivered uh and and you know according to their climate change promises right and the market has picked up on that and the ets price has gone through the floor uh, and what's that done is reduce the revenue stream to then fund these climate projects, which then makes things worse because there's not enough revenue. So the price will go down further and so on and so on. Right. It's like a spiral, a spiral of climate failure, um, by the government. So yeah, a bunch of rants about the ETS, but I think like the important thing is, is that these markets and the subsidies, like you said, Kyle is like, this is not the way to go about it for those reasons, very unstable banking. Our climate response on these things is just, um, yeah, really quite dangerous, I think.
3: Um, I think and, you know. one of the things that really pulls politicians to do this kind of thing is there's this, it's just, I think it comes out of just like the technocratic urge, right? Where uh, if we set up a process, then water will flow downhill. And, you know, there are some micro instances where that is true. Uh, you know, if you put a big magnet somewhere um, on your desk, Whenever you drop a paperclip, a magnet's going to fly over to that. A uh, paperclip's going to fly over to the magnet, and you're cleaning up your paperclips. But that's a that's a very silly metaphor, and it's not real. But that's about the scale that these processes work at. And as soon as you start adding in institutions um, or different funding streams or political actors or you know financial actors, it immediately goes out the window because everyone has their own needs. I guess if I'm being charitable. Um, that are going to pull it all in different directions. You, you can't just, oh, here yeah, we'll, we'll slap up to give her a framework. Um, we think we've really nailed this and we've got business on board and we've we've worked uh, bipartisan with our political opponents uh, who are always act, uh, acting in good faith. Uh, so the easiest thing to do, provided, and this is the key thing, provided we don't want a climate disaster, head, head and lead, a lot of corporates don't care about that, um, and political opponents don't either. Provided we don't want a, a climate disaster, they can just follow this this set of steps, um, and it should solve it. But it's just, at best, incredibly naive. Um, and it's been a contention we've had with James Shaw in particular uh, for a while. Uh, he, I, I think he he truly believes that this kind of politics works, that this kind of policy can be effective it's it's really sad uh because he has been in a position to to change the conversation here and he's poured all this time and energy into something which was never going to act effectively and in, in the current uh political and business environment it's it's just counter to all the all the way that these things work
1: it's a it's a systems thinking problem right? Like you can't just go purely economistic on this, on these kind of huge, complex things. And as Paul said, even the people who are very like, you know, hard-nosed, economistic, pure, like market fundamentalists, they're also really unhappy with the way that this would work as well. There's no <laughs> there's no winning, right? And it's extremely unpopular. And, you know, John John Keyvoice, at the end of the day, um, we live in a democracy. If like 2 million people in a in a country of five million people are unhappy with what you're doing, you're screwed as a government, and the law's going to change. Like you need to recognise reality. You need to recognise the like the complex um, system that you live within, and it's not just one like market mechanism that you can institute and solve yeah. every problem with one weird trick.
3: What's really frustrating is that there's a whole bunch of just, just transition work around the stuff that exists and, and could be utilised, um, and. You know, we've we've had uh, Ed Miller on the cast previously, for example, to talk about the Master Point refinery. Um, These are, you know, polluting industries which we could have nationalized, um, kept running and used to fund the transition in the way that apparently this polluters will pay system is meant to be doing, but in a way that gave the government control over it um, and allowed us to directly fund the communities that are affected like and that way that's how you get the voters on board that's how you get like the people of the country on board to actually work through this project together to build something which is going to work for us in the future i don't know what the outcome is of giving this one private company a way to be less polluting like who no one really wins from that it's very closed circle apart from them yeah uh, and you know, we're, uh, Mark was saying it's not, or was it you, Paul, referring to the the Orem piece? Um, this is just like this is a, a drop in the bucket. Like it needs to be whole sector um, and cross sector, and this does not do that in any useful way. I think as well
2: something that I've been finding quite curious about this whole situation. And so I went and had a look at, went onto Google Maps and had a look at this thing because I was kind of interested in you know you sort of you know about these these big kind of plants around the country that make up like whole percentages of of gross emissions and are these kind of these Muldoon era think big kind of projects really um, and they were designed and built in a very different era very different understanding of the economy and a very different understanding of New Zealand's needs and I feel like this there's this whole kind of question around like what what do we need this steel for? And what's the what kind of steel is it producing? Um, why why haven't they already got this technology? Like it's actually mad that they haven't got like an electric arc furnace that they've just been running like on the 1970s, where was actually out of date in the 1970s. Um, you know, New Zealand's never been a big industrial producer on that scale. And there's just there was no sort of um, there's some talk about oh, you know, this is going to un- unlock the circular economy. Um, yeah, you know, I guess like we can we can melt down like recycled steel, but for what? Like, what's the purpose? There's like no narrative around actually explaining what does that mean? Like, help me understand it because I like I just see this decaying moldoon era infrastructure that hasn't hasn't had any investment in it. it's basically I think like you were talking Kyle about the misunderstanding um, I think a key part of that is just these technocratic sort of decision making processes they it's like there's this kind of business kfabe that um, the the you sort of the, the managers and the facilitators are the ones that they talk to They don't talk there's not like not a very big narrative around shareholder activism and um, and that hasn't really like, a big effect and so we don't talk about the sort of private equity and multinational private equity interests here and so they kind of they the government negotiates with like the middleman and the sort of the plant manager and operator but not actually like taking into account the the dynamics of profit extraction and financialization so they're like they're kind of acting as if they're going to be working you know with a sort of a factory kind of efficiency mentality. But they're not working with that mentality. They're working with a extract maximum profit while run down the system mentality. Yeah. And for, that, that needs to be taken into possible. account. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what they're doing. And New Zealand, like unlike other countries, New Zealand is just treated like this backwater where you can just you can just run stuff down. And like it's like a um, Brian Easton's book on the history of the New Zealand economy is a really interesting intro where he talks about the foundation of the economy being quarrying, and the mentality of quarrying, you know, mining, extracting, and how it's really, really interesting to think that has just drives a lot of the thinking in this kind of almost a subconscious way, and we just haven't seemed to be able to build these more advanced. Feedback loops and dynamics to actually have a more structured economy, um, but we're still we're not actually engaging with that that level of the problem. It's just this, like
0: this is such a good point, and and I think really, um, yeah, really like sums up this particular piece of policy because you're totally right. When like with this, we're not asking the hard questions, right, about how and like you're talking also, um, Philip earlier about this, like how are we structuring the economy, like for what ends, um, and and all that, and all we're doing is like subsidizing. One company to continue um, doing what they're doing, and hopefully, like you know, with fewer emissions. Um, And and I think the the thing that really kind of like rammed that home for me is seeing this piece about New Zealand Steel's um, holding company, Tasman Steel. Uh, So last year, the in to June twenty twenty two, they increased their profits by one hundred and fifty three percent to three hundred forty million dollars in that year.
3: Wait, they can just take. 148 million out of that to get well, mark
0: so. and it gets worse because they also received in that year 117 million dollars worth of free carbon credits from the government um and so i think like to me that like the fact that we're giving this company more money you know much more money just to invest to to do what they do anyway a little bit cleaner like really just um yeah underscores that point around status quo versus what you're talking about mark and actually questioning You know what we're doing here and what the purpose of it is.
3: What's going to be really funny is it's going to turn out Labour approved this because, let's be honest, James Shaw can't get anything done by himself. It's always signed off by Labour somewhere else for some other reason because they wanted another outlet to get rid of surplus power um, generated by all the rain uh, so that they can keep power prices high uh, and all the gin tailors don't hold the government hostage. You heard it here first.
1: It's a good conspiracy. I love it. we should move Um, on to the next topic though yeah yeah so i was about to i was about to say actually this does fit in quite well uh this talk of like government spending and uh trying to figure out what works for consumers and what doesn't uh with the post budget polling that started to come out so one news had a kantar poll come out yesterday i believe a couple of kind of minor changes nothing i thought was that exciting obviously every poll has to get billed as huge change um you know 51 49 is now 49 51 like grab your yeah. grab your shotguns defend your homes um, means nothing you, you, you can know? always
0: tell whether there's going to be like an actual reasonable shift because if someone on twitter says like it's an earth shattering poll <laughs> then you know that okay there might be it might be worth paying attention to but if they don't if it's just like oh it's poll day tune in at 6 p.m then you know that it's just like boring
3: I literally shit myself twice. This poll was so extreme.
0: It's like,
1: uh, and, the, the, okay,
3: wow, 2%. All
1: right. Yeah. That means New Zealand First has gone from 2% to 4%. Um, Big, big mode. Um, yeah, pretty exciting. So, you know, this is post poll day, post national ruling out to Bati Maori. Uh The Chris Hipkins bump seems to have ended. So there's a few things happening at the same time. I think it's useful to kind of check in and see what's happening. Looking forward to the campaigns actually kicking off um Luxon's touring the country and his make a great again ruled out uh draft version turned into get back on track the software I can't
3: believe that fucking line man <laughs> back on track by building more roads like yeah yeah not those can't... not the tracks you're thinking not, of not those the tracks they just
1: just incredible I mean it's cut and paste from the right track wrong track polling right like that's surely what what they're trying to bring to mind because in all of these polling uh questions there's usually do you think the country's on the right track do you think the country's on the wrong track um and pretty consistently people are not happy yeah but, it's too cute it, though it's too fucking cute it is but that's what they're trying to do you know everything they,
2: they do is copy pasta like that's just it literally is. nothing they do that is not like that
1: that's yeah that's the nationals policy is a uh, copy and paste a thing that looks like it's good for us <laughs> to be fair that's the thing they've been most consistent on for the last year so good for them
0: well i thought luxem was supposed to be a copy paste john key right but i think like <laughs> He's pretty much, uh, and I think it's safe to say now, that he's pretty well failed at that. Like, I I thought that, you know, how long has he been leader for now? Almost two years. I thought by this time, he would have nailed um, the, the kind of, you know, every man want to have a beer with, you know, John Key kind of vibes. And even though John Key was incredibly rich and, you know, wealthy and successful in his investment banking career and so on, before um uh before entering politics you know he was he was able to harness that vibe about him right which which gave him some you know mass appeal to a smart dude
3: Um, that seemed dumb right i like i think that's what it came down to
0: yeah and and luxon has i think just like completely failed to do that um he still seems very elitist um, but having said that they're polling like them and labor are pretty much neck and neck. I think they're very, it's pretty competitive and you know, there's talk about Lux and, you know, speculation on media on, on Twitter rather about him being rolled and so oh, on. Oh no,
3: and, and the media as well. So yeah. there, there have been like major stories from commentators. Heather Allen was, was writing about it. Um, I think Janet Wilson today had a piece Um, kind of saying, where's national going? So yeah. it's, it's out there as well.
0: It is, it is. But I mean, I don't think that they're anywhere near uh, Doldrum's territory yet for something like that to happen. Um, especially considering the instability that they had with previous and the previous term with leadership, uh, I think they'd be much more inclined to try to play it safe and take the chances this election. And they're in they're in a winnable position, right? I mean, that poll showed I think a majority. A, several seat majority if you combine national and act, right? Two or three seat majority is
3: national in a winnable? This is something actually I, I want to maybe just have as public conversation here. Is national in a winnable position or is act in a winnable position?
0: Yeah, good point. Yeah. Because I mean, is it basically the same thing?
3: i d I don't think it is. I don't think it is because it, it it raises questions about what National's path to victory is. So, you know, previously uh back in twenty twenty before COVID and, and whatnot, National was consistently polling in the mid forties, low to mid forties. And if there is wide dissatisfaction with the government um, and like people's lot in life, which is the case right now, it's pretty bad on a lot of fronts, that's what you'd expect the other major party to be hitting. But they're not. Their, Nationals' win is coming almost entirely on the back of ACT having grown and stabilized their vote. Um, and we've got this, this really interesting um and excuse me for using terms like interesting here this is just me being an analyst and not you know a good person it's really interesting that actor going after national seats they're trying to move in on some of that ground at the same time as trying to pull from the, the more reactionary groups with some of this woke language so in some ways they're undercutting that overall vote by trying to create this sense of uh, hostility between the two parties to, to drive some of those outcomes. And nationalists are trying to pull back the other way. They might potentially end up in this kind of reactionary spiral, which is going to be bad for them, I, I suspect. Uh, and that says to me that they're not necessarily in as good a place as a party as the polling shows in terms of their ability to form government. Uh, there are very like clear places where it could collapse. In a way that we probably haven't seen in a major party government switch since, I don't know when actually, maybe ever. We we haven't really had MMP.
2: But is it just a tug of war between these sort of National and ACT kind of marginal voters? Like, I, I agree it's a bad place for National to be, and we saw this week. Like, the problem for Luxon is he can't he can't authentically do that culture war stuff because his track record just doesn't. Like it's embarrassing. Like he's he he made this big commitment to learning today, or he can't come out and do this road sign stuff. Um, especially being the guy who, in twenty nineteen, um, as head of Air New Zealand, tried to copyright Kiora. Like was even forget this shit like out. That. It's like. just damaging. Like you can't. Then I think that that yeah. part of it. But I think what's happening is like the the kind of core voting base don't give a fuck. That's just because it's the team blue. You know, and if, if you're out in, in Hawick or Botany or wherever, um, you've got your you've got your Simians and and you've got your kind of movement. The same in Canterbury, of course. And um so they are trying to reset that. And you can sort of see signs of that in the local politics. But is it enough? I think it's like basically to me, it's not so much that National are winning. It's that people in Auckland largely are really, really pissed off with Labour and Labour have just haven't yeah. done Enough to sort of reconcile with the majority of Auckland voters around what happened in 2021 and just the lack of support.
3: What happened at the beginning of this year? Yeah, you know, they're like, there's still places people who are red stickered in Auckland.
0: I think things will start probably picking up pace. Like the movement in the polls will start picking up pace over the next couple of months, right? Campaign. Yeah, campaign season is starting properly. Post budget, I think Labor have got their um, party conference this weekend. Uh, You know, yeah political parties will start to announce those those election big headline election promises and it it felt like the budget was kept intentionally light right so like labor could brand um their election promises you know as labor like labor party only things and like this is you know you're going to get this if you vote for labor
2: yeah
0: um so it's going to be interesting to see how the polls change there's the interesting word again kyle <laughs> um, over the next few months and like the you know those last few months is is really the that's the defining factor you know like early on in the term everyone always um provides a caveat to whenever polls come out to say like, this doesn't matter you know <laughs> let's wait let's wait two years and then see what's happening but yeah and, and so what are labor going to do and and also national and the greens and act what are and to party maori like what are all these parties going to do to address that sense of frustration that you talked about mark um around people who have had their lot you know reduced by this government you know for two terms now um are we actually going to see something or is it just going to be more of like you know if you really want to save money on your power bill just take a shorter shower and you know turn the air conditioning down whatever the fuck that they were (laughs)
3: Thanks, thanks, folks. Yeah. I think the, this is this is the key issue, um, and you know this has been talked about last year. National were trying to get in on it really hard. Is this cost of living crisis? They're really trying to brand themselves as the ones coming uh, out to help the uh, regular New Zealander, and and their their way of doing that is tax cuts, right? Tax cuts at the lower end that also happen to give more to people at the higher end. But you know we we know that's a bad. This is bad policy. This is this is straight just straight up election bribes without any without, without another option i you can't blame people for going for it yeah okay public services are going to be cut. um we're going to lose a whole bunch of stuff in the long term but i can feed myself tomorrow you know that that's a real decision people are having to make if that's what's on the table then people who are, are labor vote vulnerable labor voters are they going to not vote or that i look some of them are going to switch like that's that is just in their interest, like $20 extra a week, cool, that's more rice, you know, like, and it's just been this real, really incredibly frustrating thing, Uh, just over the course of the entirety of uh, our recording for one of 200, is the inability of Labour, but especially uh, of the Greens, to go after this vote. Because I think, especially in this election, which is shaping up to be an MMP election, where minor parties actually matter, which, again, we haven't seen for like properly for a while. The party that can offer something and show that they're serious about getting results, show that they can do something about it, is going to be the one that picks up a lot of, uh, not surprise votes, but hanging votes. Votes that might not have occurred in any other circumstances. And Labour and National are only the... And this is why people kind of, like, we tend to see these swings between two major parties. They're the only ones that people see as being able to affect uh, power, to being able to say they're going to make a change and then do it, just because they're major parties and they lead the government. And that's a pretty fair um, kind of rubric to have for for how you're going to get a change in your circumstances. I, I don't deny anyone like that. But neither Greens nor really ACT have shown that they're really willing to go hard against the major parties to get the things that they are saying they believe in, ACT I think has been much better at it. Um, they they go after national. They really like slam them when something isn't too ex- isn't extreme enough for them. And it's really like everything ACT does is is insane. I, I want to be really clear about that. Their policies are nightmarish. They're so they are out to the right of what Liz Truss tried to do in the UK and almost collapse the European economy. They are, it is a continuation of the 80, the 1980s reforms that began with virginomics It's it's really, really bad stuff. But the Greens are out here. We've seen a, a few murmurings, uh counter to a lot of the stuff. You don't have to hand it to Seymour Paul. Paul Callan in the chat trying to bait me, and he, he succeeded. Um,
0: I'm just I'm just parrying what Phillips says. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right.
3: Yeah, I'm right. With the Greens, they, they've started to show some uh, some change in rhetoric, uh, which. It's almost coming counter to what James Shaw is saying from the podium, uh, which is to align himself with Labour and talk about the climate election a, a lot more than anything else um, and trying to para- like uh, amplify these wins he's getting in the climate space. Uh, you've seen both Chloe and Ricardo doing a lot of work together around the cost of living stuff, um, around wealth tax, around equality, around uh, support for beneficiaries, uh, getting rid of some of the sanctions. Uh, All the stuff that Labour has said they're committed to but aren't doing, they're starting to push those lines. Uh, The question is, do voters trust the Greens to, one, get into coalition uh, agreements with Labour in the first place, and two, once those are started, to be ruthless enough to get their bottom lines, if they even have them. And we, I don't know if the Greens have bottom lines, I don't think the Greens do officially have bottom lines on some of this stuff yet. If the Greens are just making mouth sounds, if it's just rhetoric, people don't trust that anymore. Like they started going out the window with Obama's Hope Campaign. It's a, it's it's a long we're a long time uh, gone since that kind of stuff worked. They need to show that there's a little bit of mongrel there that they're willing to really go hard on labor, in the same way the Act has been on national, and that's where a left a left wing government. Uh, when is coming from uh, it's from the greens picking up some of that vote forcing labor to act as a a partner in coalition uh, arrangements as opposed to uh, the major party guiding hand because otherwise act does it on the other side it looks like it can get some concess- concessions from national and people say okay there's, there's my tax cut and they're not going to change road signs to being maori
1: well look, the um okay. the poll that came out um had a question about were people did people think the budget would help the cost of living? The Kantar poll and it said there was a headline that was most people unconvinced budget will help cost of living. Um but I would have said it even more brutally than that because sixty percent of people said no, they didn't think it would help the cost of living, and only twenty-six percent of people said yes. Which in an environment where the sort of governing block and uh, the right are pretty much neck and neck that's not good numbers that's not what you want to see in an election year um from a you know a small target kind of budget like that 26 percent of people saying yes that's that is nasty kind of numbers right that's your where's your tribal labor supporters there you know they're not convinced and that's and the majority of people a separate question a majority of people think 50 something percent said that they're buying less fruit and veggies than they were a year ago to cope with the cost of living which we can all feel, right? You go to the supermarket. I spent $300 at the supermarket the other day just for myself. It's it's insane. That's like four bags of groceries. So national campaigning on get back on track without an actual like vision or policies is, you know, it makes sense. It's standard kind of Tory stuff, trying to capitalize on that right direction, wrong direction numbers. Um, One interesting thing I thought is that in recent years, other than than the COVID uh, period where Labour actually spent some money, Um, in recent years, usually after a budget, there's a a bump for the opposition, um, which you wouldn't know reading most, kind of uh, the way it's sold is often like, is this going to be good for the government? No, it never is. (laughs) Because governments have been stingy for the last decade, um, and basically just tinkered around with some neoliberal means tested bullshit. um, And it gives the opposition a chance to say this isn't enough. And people go, you know what, they're right, it's not enough, regardless of what color the, the government is, right. But yeah, as I think the really interesting point that and mark were discussing about the act versus national kind of tug of war does it expand their base does it sort of cause more friction than it does it is it more like heat than light or or what i think it under a better political manager a a better leader for the national party it could work for them really well right because you can carve up those um those voters and generate an actual debate and sort of showcase some competing visions and showing being able to work together whilst also disagreeing and saying, look, you know, all these things, but Luxon's just too clumsy. Like he's, he's David Shearer in these circumstances, right? He can't pivot. Like if ACT says something, if David Shearer says, uh, if not Shearer, if David Seymour says something, he'll be asked about it and he'll say the wrong thing the first time he's asked about it. And he'll spend two days sort of backing down, uh, giving little examples of when he would be right. He's, and it's, it's boring, but also not, or it's not like competence inspiring, right? He doesn't have that, kind of steady hand energy because he'll just constantly backflip on on what he specifically just said. And people go, well, do you agree with that or not? I have no idea. And it's going to get worse and worse as we get closer to the election. Um, as we've been saying this whole time, he's a terrible campaigner, right? All he can do is read out the lines that his NZ initiative, Goulds, and in its office have written for him. So if that's all they have, it's very hard for them to compete with ACT. He's had another, really But people can listen to because they have basic political competence.
3: He's added another feather to his cap just recently, though, uh, which is to just parrot what the Bowls Club wants to hear uh, when he turns up uh, to their incredibly narrow political meetings um, and essentially make policy on the hoof for the entire National Party, uh, which is a lot harder to walk back when you've you've said you're going to do this thing to 60 pensioners that you're trying to steal from New Zealand first.
1: Very, very funny to um, make up policy on the hoof in front of the gerontocracy. And then if people say, oh, I see there are a lot of old people in the room, say, don't worry, there are young people joining the National Party.
3: But literally, this <laughs> literally happened. Uh, it's it's really weird. And it really talks to his kind of people pleasing kind of needs uh, as, as this kind of board leading CEO of Air New Zealand previously, I guess, where if he's in a room of people, they can pressure him however they want. Uh, and he, he's just going to roll over. And then when he's in front of uh, a journalist who's pressuring, he's going to roll over on that as well. Like, in some ways, the biggest danger to New Zealand right now is having Luxon and government relying on anyone else's vote um, to the right, uh, whether it's ACT or, you know, in some instances, maybe New Zealand first, because he, they're going to walk all over him. It's, it will not be a national-led government. Like, there is no way. He, he is going to get... Just st- stomped on it. Yeah, it's going to be incredible, and we're, I think we're going to see more indications of that over the course of their campaign as he knee jerks every time uh, he sees some poll shift that is ostensibly around an issue that one of the the parties to his right has has made some some sound about. Shall we? Um, shall we talk about
2: some of the other sort of fallout of the
3: budget as well? Yeah, let's get into this- it.
2: Um, I think you covered it pretty well last week, but I feel like there's a huge issue that's sort of, it's, it's building, like, it's kind of like the tide going out sort of like massive scale thing that I think people are talking about, but there's not really a good understanding of it. Um, because when, when things get filtered into the sort of media politicking space, there's always a sort of things always have to boil down to like, like a yes or no black or white, like true or false, this or that type structure and I think um and obviously like as um as someone who works in a university I have a lot to say about my experience like directly um in that but I thought I'd just touch on um touch on what's going on with the the situation in the the tertiary sector at the moment um because that ties into both the budget but also some of the things that have been announced this week so um People might be familiar with the situation that's happening at Otago, quite full on. Um, and my, um, my friends down there are feeling pretty anxious about it, to be honest, um, because they've announced a huge series of cuts um, and the vice chancellor actually announced 700 jobs would be lost, just kind of out of the blue, um, because they they actually miss, I'm not going to say misled, they basically did it, they had this information about the finance um situation for six months or so and they didn't they didn't actually tell anyone and then it sort of it comes out in in pieces and then just just in the past week there's been this announcement um I actually got a very cloying very very ridiculous email from the VC um of of Victoria University to Heading Walker um because I'm I've I've got a degree from there um and I I think I got that before <laughs> Before some of the stuff, um, just just terrible comms. I can't couldn't believe it, and it was it wasn't really say, no specifics in it. But um, they they're announcing job losses and they're visiting a whole bunch of departments to sort of consult on um, on how to downsize that. So and again, it's all aimed at the humanities, similar to the Otago situation. And so people would be right to kind of question like what's going on, and then we're like what's in it? What's what's in the budget for the tertiary sector? Well. Um, like like they normally do the sort of the treasury kind of style of comms to kind of to fiddle around with a few line items to to I guess the, I wish I had a good kind of word or phrase to sum it up but you know how will you have like you basically have like continuing growth then um you get this kind of um like year on year increase that you can kind of use to sort of say this is the biggest thing that we've ever invested but then when you actually weigh everything up it's a cut and they haven't, the, um, the thing in the budget is around funding per student and so what's basically what's happened um, with, um, with all the universities I think apart from UC, um, whose, um, UC have had a 6% increase in student numbers. Um, and um, Otago and Vic, in particular, are the ones really feeling it. So they've um, they've seen enrolments just massively taper off, and the government's gone well fewer students. Okay, that's great. We're going to just take this money and use it elsewhere. And that that's that's kind of the the budget thinking and how they work. But there's like there's no sort of attention being paid to this ongoing kind of um, every every budget. There's just like a slight decrease in, in funding and the sector is being starved out like it's being wrung dry um and um, the of like strikes at the end of last year um they were both about the lack of funding and also about some of the working conditions um but it's kind of reached the point now where people are like um like what do we do you know we it's not sustainable we can't go forward like that um and so i think um i think that's like it's it's Really interesting to see how people have responded. I use that word interesting again. This, I think of a real lack of of understanding around what the universities actually do and what they kind of bring to like a city. As, a and that's
3: been intentional over the last 20 years, right? Like that's been a, there has been a political project um, among politicians and, and the vice chancellor system uh, that I guess it was really ramped up under Stephen Joyce. Um, yeah, you can absolutely, if you trace
2: back the, the, the kind of the lines on the line chart, it, Joyce has a huge impact on that. Um, there's a bunch of other stuff going on as well. Like there's currently, there's a review of like the performance-based research. Um, that could potentially go in a positive direction. Um, but I think there's this sort of sense that at universities, they just pump out graduates or they do this, this research that we don't care about. Um, you know, or it's a bunch of a, a bunch of gender studies academics writing papers for obscure journals, and and our tax money's going towards this woke, um, whatever, blah blah blah. That's like a thing. Um, and I I was really worried last year that that would actually explode into like more of a an issue, but it hasn't so far. And I think like the other thing I think um that's kind of relevant here, and probably one of the reasons why it hasn't is actually because universities are not as like. They're not the bastions of left-wing thought that I think a lot of people on the left want them to be or or see them as. I think that's that's like idealism. Um, I think they're a lot more complicated and diverse than that. But they're also central to this kind of neoliberal, financialized kind of system, and they've been they've been almost the most extreme purveyors of it to a certain extent, the way the system has been set up, the way it's structured, so that all that's going on. Um, I think what's, there's a couple of points I wanted to raise just because I think it's a good way to think about this stuff. Um, is the Otago one really brought it home to me. Um, there's a real parallel to what's going on in Auckland with Wayne Brown's alliances. There's been some <laughs> drama around that um, in the last week as well. That um, Basically, Otago announced like 700 people would lose their jobs. And people are like, oh, it's obviously like that's not going to happen. But if you just come out of the gate with the most extreme, scary announcement, then you've got you, you've set your negotiating position. Basically, the staff are now having to kind of backpedal. Um, and the Otago's done a kind of interesting thing. Where they basically have been for the last three or four years. They've been asking staff to resign. They've just been like, um, everybody, please resign. If you want to resign, you can resign. And that's just been like an ongoing thing for the last few years. Um, but they've they announced that again the other day as well. Like, we'll just wait for the voluntary resignations before then we start deciding. Um, I think with with Victoria, I think that was a really, uh, there was some really interesting um, data that came out. So one of the narratives around COVID that um, a lot of people were were parroting without really researching it or thinking was the loss of international students. And, oh, these, you know, these neoliberal universities relying on the international students, blah, blah, blah. When you look at, how how it's actually working? It's really like not a major factor, and you can see through COVID like that decline. It did have an impact, um, but in the in the sense of VUW, like you can really see that's not the not the major impact. Something happened around twenty twenty one. Something very significant. W- why is it Otago and Wellington that are like the two universities in the biggest crisis? Um, was there something that got injected into the economy around that time? Was there something that ha- happened with like house prices and renting around that time? Like, what's what's going on? Um, and you can you can actually look at the data and see, but like, pretty directly, like that this this housing and rental crisis and this cost of living and inflation crisis has just absolutely slammed students, and they are enrolling in fewer numbers. Um, they are they are kind of backing out of of courses that tend to be more kind of open-ended sort of knowledge-focused courses rather than sort of vocational training courses. Um, It's just everything's being squeezed. And there's not this, I don't think there's a really, there's a good sense of like, these things are connected. Like if you can't live, you can't find a place to live in Wellington that you can afford and you can't find a part-time job. um, So you have to work full-time. You've got no time to study. You can't go to university. Like, it's really basic. Um, that's not even really a part of the thinking. And the universities, I don't think, at the executive level, have actually understood that there's like a relationship to how they market the degrees and and the opportunity of, of, of going into tertiary education to teens. Um, and so, again, there's just this weird Us feedback loop where high school students are being sold like bullshit promises about getting this magical job um, and it doesn't work out like that and then they just basically can't, they can't actually get on on that kind of path um, and the universities haven't adjusted there. and instead of looking at like, okay we have these huge administrative structures and these huge marketing teams and we're spending all this money, um, you know, how, how, what are we getting value for money, like what, what do we project our student numbers to be, how, can we actually affect that, can we change that, they're kind of like, Oh, that we're just helpless here. All right, we're going to have to fire a bunch of humanities academics. Or maybe we'll review some of the sciences too. It's like, it's just not on. Like you just can, can't run, a, you can't run a business like that, let alone run like a tertiary organization. Anyway, sorry, that was like a, a, a huge rant. That's no, like okay. only a kind of slice of it as well. Like there's other stuff going on too. But I think um, people have to understand that it's like, it's like all the decaying infrastructure, like the questions around um, can can we even like build roads now? Like it's, it's the same the tertiary sector and infrastruct and infrastructure this this kind of sense of like decay. Yeah, and- it's this
3: extractive model that has led to a decades long underinvestment uh, in New Zealand as a society essentially at every level uh, from like the physical to the process to the systems uh, to the very frameworks. Uh, that would allow us to function, and we had a lot of stuff bedded in, which we've been able to you kind know, of work as a ghost ship for the last thirty or forty years. But unless there's a significant change uh, to how we interact with it, and to especially how we're we're taking some of that extracted value back from the people at the top and the corporates at the top, it's just going to fall over. It's just going to collapse. Yeah. So I don't know if this
2: tertiary situation is going to become an election issue. Like probably not. It's like um, and National has worked really hard to make curriculum the the focus, and I think that's actually a really interesting bait and switch. Mum and dad voters, right? Mum and dad voters. Yeah, because you you care about what your what your children are are being taught by, and all that also means they can copy paste some cultural stuff from the UK and the US. But I think real the bait and switch is is really weird. Like it's a funding question, and there's like you know government budget and strategy questions. Um, and there's like research, science, and technology, or like business sector questions as well. And um, it's really convenient to not talk about that stuff because it's hard. You know, it's not. It's that's not the median voter stuff.
1: Um, it's, it's, but it's materialist like, though, right? Like I, I like how you've connected the kind of livability because, as you say, like if 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 UC is not having the same issues as Otago and Victoria, like there's obviously a reason for that, right? Um, and instead of thinking in a more like joined up way about how to turn down some of those like intensities where it comes to cost of living and how are we going to make this a sustainable uh, way of kind of running a society it's it's much more ad hoc i mean in a similar it's a similar conversation we were having about uh ets solutions right you can't just go this is the economy that we have this is the current mechanisms through which people kind of imperfectly filter into that um into that job market It's it's forgetting all this all the good work that you know Grant Robertson and and co talked about with the future of work stuff at quite like a high level, um, a decade ago, right? Um, which was trying to think and in a more structural sense about how to kind of feed a more a wealthier society, meaning wealthy in a in a kind of broader sense, right? Um, and you're right if if the reason if it's obvious that UC is not having those same issues recruiting students then why is that maybe look at like housing pressures and that's the one thing that that has like consistently been the case right yeah well that's not a silo this doesn't fit into
2: no. the silos though you know you've got your education reporter and your political reporter and the mm. um, i don't think anyone in the press gallery understands these dynamics maybe some of them do but they and if they do they don't they can't talk about it because everything has to be filtered into these segments and the government works in the same way they sort of minute them you have a ministry for this and a ministry for that um, and I think people are crying out for like, I, the, and the the catchphrase in Wellington is like joined up thinking, which I I actually can't stand that phrase, <laughs> but it it is like there for a reason. But it's just like the problem is they run around going, oh, we need more joined up thinking. Like that's like just like too low level. Like you can't fix the problem at the same level that the problems ha- happening at. Um, and I think like, and you you pointed out before, Philip, about the lack of. Systems thinking? I think that's like, that's the kind of question I have. And it's just ironic that the universities are the place where you can go learn systems thinking and actually see the big picture. Um, it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's like, I know it's, it's kind of, I don't want to be glib and say, oh, it's all connected. Um, there's a, like one big hyper object, because that, it feels a bit like you can't, you, you know, it's, it's inhuman, you can't touch it or change it. Um, it was like you know, capitalism is the out of control AI all along, or whatever. Um, but like, I don't know how we we kind of we need to break the. We need a circuit breaker. We need to break the cycle somehow. And I think I, I think that that's the issue that's underlying this current election. But it's like no one will talk about it. It's like a subconscious thing. Um, or I mean, like Daniel McLaughlin will write like a long essay on it, and everyone will sort of scratch stroke their chins or scratch the. Yeah, pull their hair out, but like actually, there's like no one trying to tackle the problem, and I think that's you know that will be the legacy of this government. And Paul, I I think it's really interesting that you pointed out that speech by Grant Robertson because I think I totally agree. We're going to look back on that time period, and there are going to be all these little signals telegraphing this trajectory, but like a lot of us would have missed them because we were engaged in the Twitter drama of the week. Um, but the stuff that actually matters is, is, is that stuff that really, really kind of not necessarily mask off stuff, but it's the stuff that really shows the underlying thinking and the the big picture stuff that's sort of revealed maybe inadvertently. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I want to try to end on a more positive note, but there's not a lot of positive things to say about the tertiary sector right now, except, you know, for the people here are really dedicated to to solving these problems you give the staff a chance to have their say, you know, democracy works. Workers having their voice heard works like that. That matters.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's been a lot of through threads between all these issues, right? Um, and as you say, Mark, ironically, it would be good for universities and uh, educational institutions to be churning out more people with the kind of uh, mental discipline and knowledge and skill sets to be able to start solving them. But Apparently we're going in the other direction. Just Cassandra-ing our way into like a nightmare realm of, I don't know, losing. Losing forever in a neoliberal spiral. Cherry, thanks gang. Um, That's been us from Kyle, Paul, Mark, and myself. Thanks so much for coming along. Um, If you've been following us and thirsty for our delicious content over our uh, hiatus, then go follow us. Uh, Join us on Patreon. Throw us some dollars. If you've got them, we know there's a cost of living crisis. We're under no illusions about that. Uh, groceries first and then our podcast costs would be my my advice. Um, but thanks so much for following us and coming back and it's been, been cool to see the enthusiasm that some listeners are like, oh great, you're back. Uh, now I know what to think again um, following the, the great mavens of New Zealand's political thought. So cheers everyone and that's been 1 of 200. We'll catch you next week i
0: have it, i deny I am a pointless life But I'll all your lessons Fucking politics There's no distinction road's far now It's paid with good intentions And I'll admit that I'm At a loss for what to say When they're as a coffee we ought to stay Cause I live amongst the people every day to forget forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're on the road to hell